I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. For the next hour, turn off the news, close the Twitter stream, stop worrying about whatever they want you to worry about. Nothing but disorientation comes from that. Instead, kiss your children, look at the sky, drink a glass of water, feel your feet on the ground or butt in the chair. You're alive, you're okay, you're here, and you're now. Take a breath and enjoy being human. This is where we change the script, rewrite the codes, and envision a society built for and by real people. Playing on Team Human today, author, professor, and cyber-feminist Alexandra Yuhas. What are the rules of all being together in a space with our, our little satchels of values? Honoring that variety. Coming to something that matters from that vital difference, which is humanness. Professor Yuhas and I will be looking at how we can regain our bearings in a landscape more driven by impulse than imagination. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. I've been thinking a lot lately about money. I mean, the money that we need and use to make this show. And I looked at a bunch of the different models for podcasts and radio shows. The most obvious would be to go to a foundation or an NGO and take a grant of some kind. Sure, that's a good idea, but it's not really sustainable. It depends on begging some powerful institution for some of their extra scraps, spending those scraps, and then going back for more. (laughs) And slowly becoming more and more aligned with whatever the agendas of those institutions are, and less free to have the agenda emerge from what we're doing and what our audience really wants. We could get ads... You know, there's a bunch of places, you know, MailChimp and all these uh, net companies putting ads on podcasts. But look at where advertising took the web. It would lead us inevitably to chase numbers over teammates and then undermine the very purpose and premise of this show. Now, the only way I think for this show to work is for us to take money from the people and businesses for whom we hope to create value. And that is you. So, yeah, we've got a Patreon page at patreon.com slash teamhuman and a support button at teamhuman.fm. You can come in at any level and gain access to our Slack, get free books, access to special talks and videos on our Patreon page. Now, does that mean that those without money to participate are actually shut out of the Slack channel? No. You can always take the initiative if you want to join our Slack channel and talk about ideas and guests and the shows that we've done, the questions we've raised. Just email and ask, and we'll let you in. That's the secret, okay? It's not a place to get people to write your papers for you, though. So if you're participating in a way that feels like mooching, we'll ask you to stop or to leave. It's a private living room, not a public forum. 
but I don't want the inability to contribute $2 a month to stop you if you want to participate from actually being part of this. I'm not taking any of the funds myself either. I'm a professor now, and I see my work here as the research being funded by the public college that's employed me. Professors get more than adjuncts, and that surplus is supposed to be paying for us to do research and publication, or in my case, what I see as public service. And that's what you're a part of here. Research on what makes us human, why it matters, and why it's worth fighting to preserve. This is not a common subject in academia, which seems more ready to dehumanize the very most novel and living expressions of our humanness. In fact, academia seems to have responded to the digital era by embracing technology as a way of conferring legitimacy on their otherwise too soft pursuits. Humanities has for a long time seen itself as a poor, older brother to science and math, which are real subjects. And humanities professors have been looking for ways to make themselves look like they're doing something closer to social science than being mere partners of the arts. Media theorists do quantitative analysis of populations and content forms, and some of that's fine, but some of it strays way too easily into market research and the reduction of humans down to their consumer profiles. Media studies, through an entirely applied digital scientific approach, becomes nothing more than big data. And even in the arts and humanities, there's this new up-and-coming discipline called digital humanities. And a lot of them are doing interesting things, but a lot of them are doing something very different. I thought digital humanities would be like this, looking for what does it mean to be a human being in a digital environment, but it's not. It's more about counting and calculating. They'll take Shakespeare's Hamlet and count the number of thous and how long the sentences that thous are in in Hamlet versus King Lear. It's a kind of forensic analysis on culture and society. Uh, it renders the open-ended living cultural expressions of people into dead numeric answers. And it, it's, it, it is a kind of forensic analysis of a society that's not quite dead yet. What we're doing here, academic or not, isn't digital humanity so much as digital humanism, promoting the weird, excavating the dead skin, and finding the pulsing, moist stuff underneath it. It's not reducing human activities to computation, but distinguishing human processes from those that occur in an equation or on a chip. I may be Professor Douglas Rushkoff, but I'm still on Team Human. And so, I hope, are you. My name is Adam Brock, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Kira Gant, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Marina Gorbis, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ramesh Srinivasan, and I'm on Team Human. Today, we're talking with another brand new CUNY professor, my new friend and delightfully human, queer, scholar, filmmaker, activist, cyber-feminist, Alexandra Yuhas. All right, we're with Alex Yuhas, who is uh, currently a professor of media studies or film studies. I'm professor and chair at the film department at Brooklyn College. At Brooklyn College, the, the sister school to at uh, Queens College, from which we, uh, from which this podcast emanates. I mean, there's so many things I want to uh, engage with you about, but I mean, let's, we were just talking about the uh, course, if we want to call it, um, the course that you set up, which was interesting uh, to me, and this was at Pitzer, I guess. Yes. Um, in 2007, back in the, well, it was still the heyday of YouTube. I mean. It was the early days of YouTube, not even a heyday. Was it? No, it was, it was, it was only a year old. It was still very much in development. So it hadn't merged with Google Video or anything yet. Oh, oh no, there was, that was a pie dream in the sky of people (laughs) who were going to make some money eventually. It was making no money. 
it had almost no infrastructure. When I taught it, it was a very, very small operation, so small that we wanted to meet people at YouTube, my students and I, and perhaps we should back up a yeah. tiny bit and explain what it was, the class. But um, I'll just tell you the story first because it's cool. And someone in the class is like, I think there's a guy, because I talked to the Claremont Colleges, I think there's a guy from CMC, Claremont McKenna College, who's working there. I'm like, oh, really? Well, maybe we could use a back door and get in. So we send this guy an email. He's 24. Yeah. He's just graduated from college, and he's running the politics page. Now, if you, you understand what the politics page ended up doing pretty quickly around that time. It started running national debates for the presidential election. Mm -hmm. This is like a 24-year-old kid. I mean, it was... It was a real startup at the time and was imagining itself. Um, so, yeah, early days. And then you thought up a course, which was called Learning from YouTube? Correct. In a course that was taught on YouTube, with YouTube, about YouTube. On YouTube, into YouTube, yes. So it's I've taught it five times now, but the first time I taught it, it was on YouTube. So that is to say we recorded every class. Those classes were uploaded onto mm -hmm. YouTube. That stopped after the first iteration because the students didn't want that to be that much in public. So right. one of the things that the course is about is by sitting inside of the environment, myself and my students suddenly can see infrastructure that's otherwise not available and sort of founding terms that aren't so apparent when what you're doing is playing in there because that's what they want you to do. So um, when it was on YouTube, Literally, people were watching our classes. What did remain consistent after that was that all of their coursework either had to be in the form of a video or the form of comments. So um, part, again, another one of the nestled aims was to say, learning the vernaculars of the internet space, in this case, video and commenting, is a form of speaking. It's a form of, can be a form of intelligent articulation and contr contribution. Right. And, we're going to take that seriously as a semiotics, as a form of power. Um, and so they had to do good coursework in those vernaculars. And then in the first year, where it was way more meta and way more constrained, they were only allowed to do their research inside of YouTube. That also changed. Um, part of that was for me to show them how stupid it was. But like that's just not necessary. So if they were trying to research the foundation of YouTube or the business model that makes it work, they had to find YouTubes about that in order to do the research. Correct. And the thing is, it was small then. I right. mean, one of the things that I don't think any any of us could have imagined, and that is scholars of YouTube, which I am, as silly as that is, um, or the people who own it, I don't know that anyone understood the scale at that time. Um, I think one of the things that's been interesting for me as a scholar of YouTube is that most of what I figured out that year with my students. And I was really working. Like, I pushed up my sleeves with them and were like, we're going to figure this place out because I don't get it. You're the young people. Mm. And I thought they would be smarter about it. And they really weren't, um, which, again, is another lesson. Like, natives, I'm putting scare quotes, you know, yeah. they're just playing in there. It's just been dumped on them like the rest of us. They weren't thoughtful about it. I, they do take me to cool videos that I wouldn't see, and they show me areas that I wouldn't know about that I'd like to learn about. None of us engage in the space of the internet and social media, you know, with our critical thinking hats on. Right. There wasn't a lot in there. And um, when we started in doing the research in there, again, I was just trying to show them, if you're going to learn inside of what we now call social media, which you are doing, I need you to understand how bad the library is. Mm -hmm. I need you to understand how bad the professors are. I need you to understand how low level the conversation is. Is this what you want? And how does it compare to the brick and mortar education that you're, you know, a very expensive and fancy right. brick and mortar ed education for that matter? And it did not, it did not compare well. On the other hand, you know, I'm not just a naysayer and I'm not just a doom and gloom person. And there are certain things that it does very well. And I also wanted my students to be able to name those as well. And you did find that, I mean, I guess young people are better at different things in these spaces than we are. I was particularly sanguine back in 1996. I was one of the you know cheerleaders of the digital natives, and I thought that as immigrants, we should be following their lead, and they would understand the medium. Uh, and of course, it turns out that kids are less critical. People who've been raised with interactive screens, maybe because they don't 
it just looks to them like a condition of nature. Like these are pre-existing media. Although, again, I don't want to make overstatements about anybody. Right. So my daughter, who's now 19, at that time, when was it? How many years ago did I do this? Um, nine? Yeah. She's, so she was a teen. She was, a, she was in middle school. And she and my son really were guides for me. It's been interesting to then you have a child, to chart them through their digital lives. My kids are both very nerdy and very cool in that uh -huh. way. And she has all kinds of incredibly sophisticated theories about her life online that I continue to learn from. For instance, our gut assumption is that any kid who's been raised in that space wants maximum exposure, wants to be seen, wants to have hits, wants to have numbers, right? Which is the logic of YouTube, which right. is the logic of the space. Again, a logic that I critique at no great end um, if what you're trying to do is learn things. Um, but she does not want to be visible on the internet. And she um, wants very much to control her presence and she wants to be seen when she wants to be seen and where she wants to be seen. So she's, she's worked through on her own you know, what are the dangers of the logic of visibility or virality, mm -hmm. um, which, which my later work names in a more kind of tweet-worthy way. Virality is virility, which I, is a statement that I wrote not that long ago. But I've always been um, critical of what I understand to be a kind of popularity contest-like thinking that allows the most inane, shareable, mediocre, comfortable expectable ways of thinking to rise to the surface and everything else is very hard to see and that's what I call niche tube and I say that niche tube and YouTube need each other they know each other but they have completely different logics and so the logic of niche tube which is also the long tail is that everyone says everything it's usable for anything it really is that's one of its wonderful facilities and powers Anyone can put anything on there, and you can, maybe can find it, but maybe you can't. But that's not dominant YouTube. That's not corporate YouTube. That's not YouTube of, you know, whatever this new video is that more people have ever seen ever than the history of the world in three weeks just happened. Some rock star, <laughs> hip-hop star. Bieber, actually, oh, believe. Um, you know, the place where movies get sold, the place where music gets sold, the place where products get sold, the place where bodacious babes get sold, the place where racist thinking gets sold, the place where homophobia gets sold. I mean, all the things that we know get sold. So that, sense. this dovetails with your cyber feminism ideal. I mean, so is, is the universe of, of niche YouTube more aligned with the feminine archetype and the monoculture YouTube is the male virility <laughs> Trumpian know. one? I've never, I've never <laughs> laid that uh, logic on it, and I and I would be fearful to do that. Right. I mean, I guess as a feminist, I don't. It's a little oversimplified. Perhaps, but... <laughs> and also, you know, women aren't just good at shit. You know, and men are the bad guys. I mean, that's really not how I see myself as a feminist. I think when I use the word virality and virility, I think that there is a male logic to who is Trump to. A, lay, a, a kind of laying down in our new environment, perhaps not the old, old environment of YouTube, which is, looks quite naive now, the kind of aligning of corporate might, military might, and media numbers to produce, to weaponize in a show of hypermasculine force, which is real. I mean, that's what virality really means. So it's not then, it doesn't just sit in the place of selling toothpaste and movies and music, it becomes bombs. And I really do think that that was inevitably the logic of the internet mm. and that male, male muscle, which becomes weapons, which becomes bombs, which is the death of real human beings around the world, is a logical and sick outcome of a playful space that we were given and told didn't really matter very much. But we didn't think this was going to happen. In the days of Brenda Laurel and Donna Haraway, I thought the net was going to be the female connecting spatial anti-corporate hands around the world global guy in kumbaya. So did many of them. <laughs> so I mean, I, you know, I just love the way that you're gendering it. And of course, that's correct. 
I mean, if you think about Haraway or, or Brenda Laurel, a great choice, and also the, what is, it's just blocking on, I'm blocking because of my age. Sandy Stone? Of course, Sandy. But I'm thinking about the feminist, um, radical cyber theorists uh, from Europe, and I'll remember it in a second. And they really overlaid like this kind of hardcore essentialist yeah. body, body feminist feminism on it. And we talk about them a lot in feminism. Sheila Ubernitsky? Uh, it's a group. It's, a, group. it's, a, oh. it's a, a collective. If you look up cyber feminism, right. they come first. They really connect it to women's genitals. Right. I mean, they just like go all the way, which I don't know that Donna Haraway would do. No. But, you know, sure, women are good at collectives and they're good at. They're pacifists, the best of us. And we have thought long and hard about a term called safe spaces, which I, again, put in scare quotes. I, I think a lot about what doesn't work in safe spaces and, and what you have to watch for in safe spaces. But again, when I think about the internet, I've been very interested in imagining what a feminist set of values around community, around politics around um, interaction would look like. And I often suggest, so as I might, another project that I've worked on for Feminist Online Spaces, that the free-for-all, the brawling free-for-all mm-hmm. of the internet is not, has not been good for us, and that um, value-laden, communally produced, iterative productions of rules inside of the space are actually necessary which would include who's allowed in and who's allowed out, which is, you know, that Well, that's treating it like a commons of some kind. It is like treating it like a commons of some kind. Yeah, it is. And the, the, well, the dominator mentality on the commons is that the commons is doomed for failure. You know, all the, you know, the whole tragedy of the commons, that they can't be maintained, but they can as long as you've got rules and exactly. some stewardship. I believe that both of those things are utterly necessary. And I think there's a certain form of, like, even leftist thinking that is very scared. Um, and also feminist thinking about, about anything that looks hierarchical, anything that looks like structure, you know, rules, right? Because right? you need this sort of anarchic free-for-all, which does seem romantic from afar, and turns into the bullying behavior, which we also know as feminists, dominates the space. And again, Trump is just the manifestation, just this sick, unlawful manifestation of everything that had been permitted in that space. And we get, you know, as we say, you know, he's the logical outcome of the internet. Of course he is. He, he only does what we've decided is fine for the last five or 10 years. But doesn't it make you want to just then leave the net and just say, screw it? Yeah. But you don't. No, I don't. Um, and I do. I mean, the 100 Hard Truths Fake News Project, where I like sort of did the um, learning from YouTube-like thing, but like on spades. So learning from YouTube, sitting inside YouTube, looking at it, talking about it, trying to produce a counter-discourse inside its space was really what I tried to do. Like, well, it's capacious enough. Mm-hmm. can hold anything. We'll, talk, we'll show you other ways to do it. When I did the 100 Hard Truths Fake News Project for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, uh, I had to think of a hard truth every day for 100 days. I got really, like, I got really sick. What were some of your hard, hard truths? Well, virality, it, it, <laughs> virality and virality is one of them. Um, um, there's 100 of them, I, I, and I haven't looked at them recently. Um, but everyone else can by going to... Fake News Are Us. Yeah. So that's one of them, Fake News Are Us. Like, that one, that one was pretty early, and I realized, like, Trump is a logical manifestation of the norms of the Internet, and so is our complicity in the production of Trump. And there is no outside to that. And, wh- and I was saying it in relation to fake news, but what I meant is every time you look at fake news and try and criticize it, every time you make a... A meme about it, or a, hmm. or 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 a cute, funny picture that you put on Instagram, or write a very careful blog post. All you're doing is producing the virality, right. which is growing the numbers, which is giving it and him that virality is virility, that virility power. There's as soon as you look at it in a Cunian sense, mm-hmm. you've you. It's not just that you've changed it; you are it. 
And that's why I started to feel really gross. Like I just felt like paired with him by about 50 days in. Like there's no way that I was pure or, you know, outside of or better. I was just part of what we all were doing and are doing. And I think the question is, yes, should you leave the internet? Maybe so. Like, I think maybe that is part of our work. I think um, producing, so 100 Hard Truths Fake News Project, for the next year, I'm going to, I'm interested in producing new forms of digital media literacy that I think have to be based in real rooms, in real places, with real people who live in communities and start to learn together. And that's never, to me, separated from the internet. I don't, you know, I believe in X reality. I, I don't believe there's a world that's pure and then there's the internet. I mean, I don't think there's a world that isn't made of our technology and in our technology, but I do think we have to um, be together outside of its logic as well. Right. To the extent that's possible in a world that's so inundated. But I guess whether we're talking about our, our social or economic development or classroom development, I mean, because a lot of the stuff you talk about is framed in pedagogy, but when you talk about, okay, how the classrooms and places like Coursera or all the MOOCs out there, you start looking systematically, well, what do they leave out? And then those things that they leave out tend to be associated again with what females would bring to these institutions. I am more than happy to you know, say that females and feminists do that. So like you're, you're referring to the work of FemTechNet, which is an right. organization which I founded. And, uh, with, with and you can go Anne to Balsam. at femtechnet.org. Org. Yeah. And it, it's grown. And there's a the manifesto there. Manifesto and it's basically, I mean, to me, what the manifesto said is a lot of what I'm trying to say with Team Human, that being human, I'm arguing being human is a team sport. You can't do this alone. We've got to find the others. And in many ways, you need to find the others in the real world rather than online because it's a broad spectrum connection. So look, all I'm saying to you is, so I'll, I'll backtrack back and tell you a little bit about what FemTechNet, this group, lots of people did. We were, we were critical of MOOCs early on, and we invented another thing called the DOC, Distributed Open Collaborative Course. And we, our Distributed Open Collaborative collaborative course for those people on your podcast who know is nothing really more than an X MOOC. It's a situated MOOC that's responsive um, and distributed as opposed to top-down. Again, I don't know how familiar people are with what I'm talking about. But what was cool about that was that in my whole life as a feminist, I very rarely talk to anybody outside of my small sphere. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. And we were walking around the world, like talking at the highest levels. And by this, I mean FemTechNet, you know, to the Scions, Scions, how do you say it, who run Harvard and Yale and Princeton and right. all those people that had put all this money into MOOCs and, you know, state legislatures. And we were saying these are feminist principles that get us an insight into technology, into teaching that is very useful. You can strip off the feminist if you want. And I say the same to you. You want to use the word human? You know, go for it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that those are feminist principles. Right. And I, I give them, I give them to all humanity. That's what they're well, for. Because you're a feminist. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they're all for. And yes, those are feminist principles about how to be in the world, how to engage together, how to change the world. And you know, they're they're available to all humans. And and for me, a word that we haven't used, but I've been sort of circling around is 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 this situatedness of our human experience gets lost in a lot of these top-down manifestations of I mean, internet. I mean, the fact that we're incarnate and in a location, that there's one instance of us right now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. And that, um, and that it matters. You know, your age matters, and my age matters, and your ethnicity matters, as does mine. And the fact that we're in New York City matters. And it matters both in the sense that this is where we live and this is where we breathe and this is where our home is, but also how I can know. My situatedness is embodied in, you know, my capacity to know. Um, and, and that's been stripped from these top-down corporate interventions, which is all of the internet at this point. And it's been intentionally devalued because it's an impediment to market growth. Exactly. But you know what's interesting, because <laughs> I know you think about this. I mean, of course it isn't, because... Um, the algorithms that define us 
to sell us things, you know, are highly specified. Right. What's interesting, I just read a, a book for a tenure review. I can't say what it is. Yeah. Anyway, I read a really smart book about algorithms. And in this book, he shows that what's interesting is they, it, they, it doesn't even matter if the algorithms are right. Like, it doesn't matter if it identifies you as female, Doug. It doesn't matter if it thinks you're 16. If you're algorithmically female and 16 and you want to buy that shit, you're going to buy it. Like, it's, it's a non-essential understanding of identity, which is sort of interesting. Right. But it's also like it's not grounded in you. And you're like, right. you know, I'm not a 16-year-old girl. It's interesting that I like things that 16-year-old girls like, and we could think about that, but... Well, it's not psychographic or demographic. It's algographic. It's algographic <laughs> to sell things. Right. To sell things. And, you know, I think, you know, getting back to my interest as a teacher and, and learning from YouTube and, you know, I think there's whole quarters of our lives and our work and how we live and um, what we should do that shouldn't be places where things are sold. That's just not the right logic. And, you know, I think education is one of them. I just, you know, I think it's, you don't get the best education if what it is first is a platform for selling shit. Well, what if the internet were optimized for learning? What if the internet were optimized for art? What if the inter internet were optimized for peace? I mean, there's so many things other than yeah. commercial yeah. gain. So welcome, you know, welcome to our neoliberal internet and world. And I think that's what learning for YouTube tries to argue and, you know, the feminist values that I bring to the internet are my values. And one of the things I say, so you, you, you have human values. People can bring whatever toolkit of values they have to that space. And mine are called feminist. And I often say feminist queer, feminist queer, any racist. I mean, I can kind of start to name my bag of, my, uh, my bag of values. But we know as human beings that those bag of values that are ours, as I'm saying, situated, mine is mine, yours is yours, you know, are necessary, not for education, for peace, for politics, really, for governance, you know, we, for the environment. <laughs> you know, we let, we let corporations run everything at great risk that I don't need to explain to you. But there's a, uh, I don't even know what to call it. I was gonna call it a meme, but it's certainly not a meme. There's a, a, a filter, a mindset going around, particularly among progressives, that's, uh, anti-intersectionalist and it comes in a way from those of us who were raised in the in the phil donahue marlo thomas universe it's like we're all just people let all that race and gender and whatever you are go aside and let's just all be together and you're saying no this is actually you what you are your essence is it, you are essentially informed i am a a Jewish, suburban, hippie, cyberpunk, psychedelic, intellectual lefty. You are? Yeah. Ooh. And that's okay. <laughs> it, I mean, it is. <laughs> I, I, I honor you. <laughs> I wish I had that written down. Okay, suburban? No, you live here. From suburban. Well, it was, yeah. Okay. Right. It's my origin. My origin story. Now urban. Once Jewish, now God knows what. Me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't take it off my face, though. Right. Doesn't scrub so easily. I mean, I guess no. it does. I never oh, it scrubbed could. It, it could scrub. Female gets harder to scrub. Anything can be scrubbed. Anything can be scrubbed. But not in the data. Okay, so, but, so, I mean, yeah. we, we're tossing the word essential and anti-essential around a bit. And I think what I want to say is I'm not sure, as a good feminist, I'm not married to essentialism. This is to say, you know, those, that's, a, that's a bad path. Because when you have an essentialist logic, it's like, well, black people do X and women right. do Y, which is what I was pushing back to you about, like the good women over here, the bad people over there. Like, I'm going to resist right. bad men to say we accrue values onto our lived bodies and choices that we make to be our best human selves. And some of them are, are essential, like biological, I mm -hmm. suppose, but those are all pretty mutable. They're scrubbable. Like, if I want to be a man, I kind of can yeah. now. And, you know, young people are, and people of all ages, yeah. are having a great time imagining what happens when that gets unstuck from an right. essentialist mooring. It's pretty exciting. Yes, there's a fear of the word, you use the word human, humanism, that it, that it flattens the vitality of our difference. I'm very interested in, again, what I think feminists have done, which is to say, 
what are the rules of all being together in a space, the internet, a political space, an art space, with our own, you know, our little satchels of values that, you know, we can name where they came from. And like some of them I've been born with and my parents gave me some and I learned some in school, saw some at an art museum. And then I like got married and, you know, my wife mix them up a little bit. I mean, you know, so I'm carrying my little satchel around. Like, what would it mean for us to be in a room together honoring, you know, that variety and learning from it? Not being shitty to each other, not bullying each other, not screaming at each other, and sort of coming to, coming to something that matters from that v- vital difference, which is human be- humanness. So it's not about flattening it. It's not about Marlo Thomas. And- right. Because there was this sense since the, uh, really since the election, that in some ways, intersectionalists have been blamed for, you know, infighting amongst the left and uh, a surrender of our more important class struggle. I know. Is that true? Some. Yeah. I mean, sure. I think these are that I am a champion of the uh, intersectional approach. It feeds everything I believe that, you know, you can't disaggregate anything from class. So, you know, class position matters hugely. And I am not going to disaggregate my experience as a, as a female, as a born, a person born Jewish, child of intellectuals, leftists, (laughs) um, from my class analysis or my class position. And I think we can choose as leftists, as radicals, to join around particular fundamental issues when they peak, when that's necessary. Right now, that might be the environment more than class. Mm. It's kind of hard for me to say that, but I may believe it, given what's happening to our world. But I think, again, I don't ever want, I don't ever want that flattening, that scrubbing of my complexity to be what I need to do to enter the conversation. So I can enter a conversation that puts class first. Right. And say, as a Jewish leftist, queer, middle-aged woman. Like, and that, it's exciting that I can say that with my comrade, who is a working class janitor. And, you know, we've been in that room. I've been in that room. I've been in that room. Um, A lot of my uh, activist work is about imagining the possibilities where which people of different class or race or sexuality or gender uh, can come together in the name of change. And so I've done a lot of my AIDS work from that space, for instance, and that's where I do like most of my activist work is in the AIDS space. And where do you see that the window of opportunity for, you know, if there's 10,000, 20 somethings who have jobs and are listening to this and are, are sympathetic to what we're talking about, but don't really know where and how to engage. I mean, I've been saying, you go local, find the others face to face. And they're like, well, where? I was like, well, anywhere. Is there a college? Is there a coffee shop? Is there a place where bands play? I mean, where? what should someone do? They're in, you know, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Atlanta. She nods, she nods, she nods. I'm yeah. nodding, yes. I mean, the thing about organizing is that and this is what's so complicated about the internet. Organizing starts from where you live. Organizing st- starts at that coffee shop. It always starts about something you care about. And a little morsel is fine. I think the internet is confusing because you can either be in the little space that you live or you can have everything. Like the whole bigger than the world is the internet. And you can be in that space. And you can be active and lively. I will argue that I don't really think you're heard or seen in that space. I really don't. I think that's a lie of YouTube, social media. Even when you got lots of numbers, that is not a kind of being heard and seen that has much value or meaning or power. That said, you can do it and it's it's exciting. Um, Yes, you do it from a place you care. You start with two people, you work on something you believe in, you make some art, you make a song, you write a poem, you get your friends together and you start reading. That's change that matters. It makes life worth living. And 
even when times are as terrible as they are right now, it feels really good. It just feels good for me yeah. to talk to you and make eye contact with you and like have you nod your head. Yeah. Human beings need it. That doesn't happen on the internet. Right. Yeah, mirror neurons don't activate. The oxytocin doesn't come out. None of that. No, it doesn't. And, and we manifest, if people are hungry to change, we manifest change by making change. I'm a Marxist in that sense. And, you know, I believe we produce our, the, our material reality with our behavior. And so you want a better material reality, you know, live it. Right, rather than blog it. Absolutely. I call blogging proto-political. I think it has a place in politics. Right. It's a format to name your ideas, think hard, take a position, and then you've got to do something with it. Right. So when I get email from the uh, people living in Venice Beach or somewhere in or, or further south, uh, Snapchat, I think, is there. Uh, I'm sorry to blame Snapchat if it's not you, but you're not that good anyway. Um, but a company like Snapchat is there gentrifying them the way that Google gentrified San Francisco. And, all, and they were emailing me, what do we do? You know, what do we do to stop the gentrification from a giant company like that? I mean, whatever you do, do it locally. I mean, Absolutely. don't do it. You know, someone will tape it, you know, someone yeah. will throw it up. But I, This is where I'm not against media. Right. I'm not against having an experience in reality where there's media as part of that reality, taping it, sharing it. I, I love it. I'm a video activist right. at heart. I believe that something happens to reality when it's mediated. That's useful. I also believe that reality is useful and we get, we lose it to our great, there's a better word. We lose it. Detriment. To our great detriment as humans and, and as fighters, as radicals, right? We need, so yes. Well, terra firma is our, our home field advantage. We get to experience it when we're standing, you know. We, we we're not at, we lose our home field advantage online for sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, and again, perhaps in the golden days where, you know, we all thought we were equal on there, maybe that dream felt different, but like, we are at the greatest disadvantage. We are more disadvantaged there than we are here. By that, I mean, you know, New York City, 12th floor. That space is regulated fully by forces that are only using it to buy and sell right. things and ourselves, buy and sell ourselves to ourselves, to the highest bidder. Um, and, you know, I, I, some, I do believe that, like, right now, that's not what you and I are doing. Like, I do believe that right now, and we have a friend here who's nodding as well, you know, we're doing something that is momentarily, satisfactorily outside of capital, you know, an exchange, that exchange. We're having another kind of exchange. They're possible. But I don't right. know that they are in that space anymore. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, it, it, people would think we're saying, oh, do you mean you put three people in a room and there's some magic that's happening that's emanating out and changing reality? We're not really saying that, although maybe there is. I Tiny magic. There could be, but at least there's something happening in, in a room between three creatures. Mm -hmm. Right, Stephen? That's right. He's a creature. Yeah. He's real. He's real. Yeah. It is, and then we go out it's different. It's tiny magic. Right. It's tiny, tiny, tiny magic. Like, you need all that tiny magic to add up to something to make change, and that's how revolution occurs. It's the tiny magic incrementally builds. And until then, you just got to love your tiny magic, and you got to work on your little sorcery. That's what it is. And, and we, we, as students of history, we understand that human beings can and do overthrow when things get bad enough. And until then, enjoy your tiny magic. <laughs> Do you think they will overthrow of some sort? I mean, not to get too dangerous. Do you think there is going to be a shift? I don't know. What do you think? I, I mean, I'm. So I don't think if if right there's now. not, I think we all die. You know, or a lot of us. It's so out of control right now. So yeah, I mean, it is. It is untethered, and I do know the feeling. If I spend too much time online and I get that weird untethered kind of feeling, I realize most people are walking around with that, and our leadership is in that disoriented, no memory, no guidance, no flywheel of... of That's so true. You see, this is, I mean, I believe, you know, I met, I've, I've just met you. I've heard you give a great talk. It's a lot of it's coming back to me now. You know, I think, I believe you said this at that talk, and it's a something I believe. You know, the, these changes are happening so fast, so fast to what it is to be human, so fast 
Um, they're being driven by people who want money and are making money. And, and the rest of it are just catching up. Like we're just, and, and so like now people, you, you walk, people walking around with these things in their hands because they can. Like why wouldn't they? Like someone gave me a thing in my hand. It's cheap and there's all this stuff in it. And it's so bad for people. It's so bad for people. And yes, bracket off the parts that are good. I can name them. I'm all for the free flow of information. I'm so totally cool that I can look things up in a second. It's great that all videos ever made are available. Your to daughter me. can contact you in a second if she needs to. All good. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not against technology, but I think what it's doing to us as people, um, again, look, Trump is a logical, Trump's administration, uh, citizens and politicians who are more inside their screens than in their world, in their communities. I mean, we're seeing it, we're seeing how bad it is how untethered it is. It's not rational. And, you know, I believe and you believe the effect, the end results are going to be violent. They already are. Violent, degrading, violent, brutal to people, brutal to places. You know, it's a logic that he didn't make up. It's a logic that's been dominant for 40 years in this culture. But the way that it got anchored into and kind of bound up in the new logic of the internet has been nothing that anyone ever wanted who invented that space. It's been disheartening and totalizing at the same time. And totalizing. And so I don't know that there'll be a revolution. I, I think one of the most confusing things about this moment and that device, those devices, those screens, is that they're very, very, very satisfying and placating and, you know, there's been a lot of historical thinking about what it means for me- the media to placate the masses and to confuse us and not allow us to see what is actually happening at the truth or base of our lives. But, man, the pleasures of that space are so um, total. But I think what's also interesting, and I think you talked about this when I heard you, you know, there's also there's a, there's, there's a seed of deep dissatisfaction live in that pleasure, Mm. you know? Like we all know it's sort of gross in there too and you feel kind of weird when you come out of the other side and you're not really sure if you've done anything right. Like I think that the disorienting is not just about pleasure. I think we're we're hitting a saturation point because it happens so fast where people are like, really? And it's gross in there and I think that's happening too and I don't feel better. Right. I don't, I, I don't, it's supposed to be social, but I don't feel social. I feel lonely. I'm supposed to feel grounded. I feel disoriented. Like, it's not living up to the promises, even as we are all addicted to it. Yeah, I mean, in that, in that nausea are the seeds of hope. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. Just to, so, I mean, I mean, in some ways, the easiest thing to tell people, just experience the internet. Experience it fully and choose then actively how much you want that experience in your life but we that's i mean who isn't doing that experiencing it fully i don't know maybe they're experiencing it with i guess they're experiencing it rather fully because there's a there is a, a some sedative effect to the net too that that or anesthetizing effect that can keep you from perceiving some of the damage that's being done. You get caught up with your troll and start fighting and you become him, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like, you know, the logic of virality, the logic of popularity is very, very, very feeding when it's happening to you. And so, you know, for a lot of time you're fighting for it, you get your little moment where you pop up and it's really intoxicating. Right. So, the pursuit of it is intoxicating and the gift of it is intoxicating. But w- going back to learning from YouTube, when I taught that class, we did go viral. It's, I've, yeah. you know, I'm a person who has done things that have gone viral two or three times. That one was a big, it, it was real. And um, like I was on the ride. And so then the, the mainstream news started coming to our class. And uh, Fox News interviewed me and... Um, the students didn't like it. So there was this idea, this promise of like, you're, it's supposed to feel so good. It's what you're, what you're doing everything for, to have all that attention and power. And it was immediately clear 
as a learning lesson that, you know, to be there, you have to be punished, you have to be ridiculed, you know, um, you're not really seen properly. You're not really listened to fully, right? So like the, the, the pleasures that we're having in the room, like you don't get, you don't get somebody listening to you carefully and thinking and like, that's not the kind of attention in that space. It's really fast. It's diminished. It's um, simplifying. And so the students started pushing back. They're like, you know, we don't want you to come in here if you're going to see us like that. Like, so, so, you know, to get back to that logic, like, it, it's pretty captivating until it happens. And then you're like, oh, this is all it is? This is kind of gross. No one's listening to me. Everyone's got their mic on me and no one's listening to me. They're just making fun of me. And at least if we can be aware of that and the different ways it's happening, then take off the headset and go outside and meet somebody. Yeah. And then it begins. Yeah. Yeah. The world. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.